All right, good evening. We are in Matthew 24, and tonight we'll do a little bit different than usual. We're going to do more of a doctrinal study uh, as an introduction to chapter 24, because chapter 24 of Matthew is, uh, I mean, it's not that difficult. I mean, it can be difficult to interpret uh, just because there's a lot of confusion out there and probably a lot of confusion in our own minds from our upbringings, <laughs> so uh, it can be uh, difficult to navigate through and probably is the most difficult passage in Matthew to interpret, but it's also very important because both uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, all have a whole chapter dedicated to this. So all, of it, all three of them record this, uh, and so it's very important for us to understand it properly, uh, exactly what he's talking about, what he's not talking about, uh, and then the proper application of those things. So I thought tonight what we would do is just an introduction to this issue of eschatology because that's what we're dealing with, at least in part of Matthew 24. Uh, part of it is, I believe, dealing with immediate events that are going to happen in the life of the apostles and those in Je Jesus' generation, and then partially is dealing with future events surrounding the second coming of Christ. And so we need to understand the eschatology being the doctrine of the end times, the end times, the second coming of Christ, and those events that will take place during that time. So I thought we would deal with this, and it's something that we've done before, uh, which are these essentials to eschatology, things that are necessary uh, because there are various views of the end times, uh, various views that are in the churches, and uh, some of those views are problematic, uh, at least parts of them are problematic, and they don't fit in with other parts of Scripture. And so these are the things that we, I think, are necessary to believe concerning the end times that give us some boundaries and a framework. And then the other issues, uh, there may be some differences here and there uh, that we could have different opinions on on various aspects of that, okay? So let's, uh, let's read the chapter, then we'll pray, and then we'll go through these essentials to eschatology, okay? So Matthew 24, verse 1, says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. And He said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come." Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. 
Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. But if they say to you, Behold, He is in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, He is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great uh, power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know the summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men left in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes." Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You uh, for Your Word, and Lord, we do thank You that You have given us all things, Lord, that are necessary for our perseverance, Lord, to prepare us to face the current tribulations that are associated with this life, Lord, to anticipate Your second coming, Lord, the promise that You will come and gather us to Yourself, so that where You are, we may be also. And Lord, all of these truths call for endurance and for us to be the faithful and wise slave. So, Father, we pray that as we begin this chapter uh, dealing with end times, dealing with your second coming and uh, how it is that we need to be prepared and sensible and ready for those things, Lord, we pray that we would not delve off into speculations, but rather that we would be sensible and sober in our interpretation and that, Lord, we would always be looking toward obedience, uh, faithfulness to you, 
Lord, that we would see the practical aspect of these truths uh, for the sake of our own perseverance in the faith. So, Lord, help us as we study over the next uh, several weeks. And, Lord, give us a proper understanding of this passage. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, this passage is, uh, again, one of the more difficult ones to interpret in the book of Matthew. And I think there are a couple of pitfalls that we want to avoid when we are approaching it. The first is that there are those who, when you come across passages like this that are difficult or uh, hard to understand, some people have an approach of just indifference, right? It's too difficult, we can't understand it, so it doesn't really matter, just throw your hands up and, and don't care. Well, we don't want to be like that because obviously it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, it's written for our benefit, right? We need it. It is useful for us. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is profitable. And this obviously is in the Scriptures, right? It's here in the Bible. Again, it's repeated in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, right? This same exact chapter is there in all of them, this same teaching. So the apostles thought that this was necessary enough that it was included in the Gospels. The Holy Spirit thought it was necessary enough that it was included in all three of the Gospels. So it is our duty to seek to understand it to the best of our ability, right? And to, with humility, search the Scriptures uh, and try to understand what is the will of God. Another pitfall that we should avoid is vain curiosity, right? Vain curiosity and speculations. There are those who want to come to these passages and they want to delve into speculations, into fantasies, into all sorts of specifics and details. They want to know who is this person, what is this nation, what time is it, right? Are, are these Hornets helicopters? Are these, uh, is this Russia, is it China, right? Who is it, right? And I'm sure if you grew up in a Baptist church or a Pentecostal church or any church in Oklahoma, you've heard many bizarre, strange teachings when it comes to the end times. Charts, uh, maps, graphs, you know, all sorts of stuff that they pull out to help us and give you these understandings. And many times people get so fixated on all of these minute details and specifics that they miss the main point of what is being taught, right? They don't understand that these passages are not to tickle our curiosity, but rather they are to prepare us to face trials and tribulations, to endure until the very end. And that is the proper way to approach Matthew 24. The purpose is to prepare us and to give us hope in the midst of our sufferings, right? During the time of our trials and tribulations. That Christ will not leave us, He will not forsake us, but He will come back and deliver us from all of our enemies and we will go and we will be with Christ. In the end, Christ will be victorious over all of His enemies and He will bring this present world to a screeching halt at His second coming. And we know that He is coming again. Therefore, we must be prepared. We should not suffer as those who have no hope. We should not despair when the world seems to be going to chaos all around us. Because it appears that that's what's happening. But rather, we should know that Christ is in control. And in due time, even when things are the darkest, in due time, Christ will come back. And when He does, we will be with Him for all eternity. And this calls for endurance. Endurance, to persevere in the things of God and know that Christ will come for us. So let's go then through these essentials, essentials of eschatology. These things we need to understand, and if we have our mind fixed on these, it'll help us 
from delving off into speculations, into false interpretations, because there are some views of the end times that have some problematic aspects to them that we want to avoid. So the first one is the definite return of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches this abundantly clear, that Jesus Christ will return again. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Anyone who says that there is no second coming or that the second coming has already happened, this is blatantly false. It is contrary to the word of God. It is heresy and we must reject it, okay? John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's going to prepare a place for us. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the end of our salvation, that we will be with Christ, with God the Father, right, filled with the Spirit, in heaven for all eternity. Christ is preparing the place for us through His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins so that we can be with Him and His Father for all eternity. It's impossible that He would do all of this to make it possible for us to have our dwelling place with God and then fail to come and take us to where He is. Right. Fail to come like a, a husband or a groom who is betrothed to his bride. He's going to come and take his wife and take her to his house. So we are the bride of Christ and he will come. He's on his journey now, but he will come back and he will take us and we will be with him. We also just read from Matthew 24. Matthew 24 verse 3 says, He was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there is his coming and the end of the age. We'll save 2 Thessalonians for later. Secondly, this return of Christ is bodily, visible return of Christ. It is not invisible, it is not spiritual, but it is a bodily, visible return of Jesus Christ. We will see it with our own eyes, and He will come back in the same way that He ascended. He ascended with a body, visibly and physically, so He will descend again at His second coming with a body and we will see him and all the tribes of the earth will see him whenever the son of man returns again and this is contrary to those who teach that the second coming has already taken place and this second coming was invisible and spiritual but this is contrary to what the bible teaches acts 1 verse 9 acts 1 verse 9 says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Just as he has gone up into heaven, he has ascended, so he will also come in the exact same way. Well, how did he ascend? Visibly and physically with his body. And he will come back in the same way. And we will see him when he comes. Philippians 3, 
Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. It says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. There, again, Jesus has a body in glory, His glorious body, which is a physical body, one that you can touch. Didn't He say that to His disciples? Touch and see, a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. He has a visible, physical body, one that you can see, one that you can touch, and this is the body we will have for all eternity. In this body, Jesus will return again. Number three, the rapture or the gathering, the gathering to Him, being caught up to Him, the rapture is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The living saints will be called up or raptured to Christ at the second coming and then will descend with Christ to the earth. The rapture is not a separate event that takes place seven years before the second coming. Here, the rapture, which is our being caught up to Christ, right? And the term rapture is the Latin word for that. It's translated and it comes from uh, the passage in, in Thessalonians, right? This word, which is brought over into English as rapture, is our being gathered up to Him or caught up with Christ. This happens at the second coming of Christ. It is not a secret rapture that takes place seven years before the second coming of Christ. Now, what was commonly taught or believed, what I was taught growing up, and probably many of you, in dispensationalism, they teach a secret rapture that takes place seven years before the return of Christ. It takes place before the Great Tribulation. The church is taken out of the world, and then the second coming is at a later date. But we'll see from these passages that this is all happening simultaneously. Simultaneous with the second coming of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians 4 verses 13 to 18. Four thirteen says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Here he's talking about the coming of the Lord. right? And what will happen both to those who have fallen asleep, and here in this context, Fallen asleep means dead. Those who died in the Lord before the second coming of Christ, what will happen to them and what will happen to those who are alive when the Lord returns? Right? Do you see that? The coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord refers to what? It's the second coming of the Lord. And then he describes what's going to happen. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. 
That goes back to Acts chapter 1, 9 to 11. Just as he ascended, so he will come again. He will descend from heaven visibly and physically, okay? With the shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So this will be loud, obvious. You will hear it and you will see it, right? It's unmistakable, it's unavoidable. Right now, again, this passage, according to some, is all taking place invisibly, spiritually, and secretly. But how can it be invisible, spiritual, and secret when he himself is descending visibly and physically, and there is the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God? Right? And then when they sound out, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those believers who have died in the Lord they will rise from the grave in their new glorious bodies and they will be gathered to the Lord, right, who is coming in the clouds, okay? So they will be gathered to the Lord. They will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. That phrase there, caught up, is the term rapture in Latin, okay? In Latin, it would say rapture. In English, it translates it as caught up. Okay, so then those who are alive on the earth who are in the Lord, they will be caught up together with them. So the dead will be raised first, and they will go to Christ. Then those who are alive, their bodies will be transformed miraculously, and then they will go up with Christ as well and meet them in the clouds, in the air. Now, is this secret? Invisible? No, it's obviously it can't be because the resurrection is physical. Right? Our bodies are physical. Right? Their actual bodies are coming out of the grave. So how can this be taking place in an invisible way? It doesn't make any sense, right? But this is what is commonly taught. This is the passage where they teach the secret rapture. This, this is the passage. But it doesn't make any sense because all of this is happening visibly, physically. It's all right there in front of you, right, in what people are seeing. It will be obvious to everyone as to what is taking place. Okay, then also 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 to 12. It says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and give relief to you who are afflicted, and to save us as well. Now here, he's talking about justice, the judgment of God, uh, and what's happening to the believers. Because at this point, they are being afflicted. They're being afflicted by their enemies unjustly. But God is righteous in His judgment, and God is going to give relief to them, and He's also going to repay their enemies. He's going to afflict those who afflict them. Now the question is, when? When is this going to take place? Well, it all happens with one event, okay? In that event in verse 7 is when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believed. For our testimony to you was believed. 
To this end we all pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there, the affliction of the enemies and the relief of the church will take place when the Lord is revealed from heaven. And when He's revealed... Revealed in what way? Visibly and physically, right? Revealed, right? If you reveal something, you see it in that way. That's what it means. With mighty angels in flaming fire. How can this be invisible, secret? No one knows it happens, right? You, you understand what I'm talking about? You've seen the uh, movies, right, where people just disappear and nobody knows what's going on. They're driving on the... Whoosh, they're gone, you know? It doesn't make any sense. When here, it will come with an archangel... He will descend with the clouds. There will be flaming fire. There will be myriads of angels with Him. There will be the resurrection of all the righteous. All of this is going to, of, of all time, or their bodies are going to rise. This will be unmistakable. There's impossible that anyone would miss this or that it would be secret and invisible in that way. So, the righteous are relieved of their afflictions and the wicked are afflicted when Christ is revealed from heaven. So the salvation of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked happen at the same event when Christ is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Then chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Chapter 2, 1 to 12. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to Him. Notice there. The coming of our Lord and our gathering together to Him are simultaneous. Right? They're one ev- He's speaking of them at one event. He's not separating them by seven years. That's what you would have to do if it's secret. And actually, you would have to put our gathering together to Him first, and then His coming would be second, right? But He's speaking of them as one event that happens simultaneously, okay? Our gathering to the Lord, and, or the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to Him. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as it is from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So some people are telling them He's already returned. The second coming has already taken place, and you missed it. And He's telling them, don't let people deceive you in this way, okay? They're saying this, but they're lying. They're not telling you the truth, right? And they're wondering, did we miss it? And His point here is, you didn't miss it. Because if you did, it's impossible. It's impossible for you to miss it. It is so obvious, right? It's so obvious. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object or worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by his appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception and wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. 
So here, this second coming of Christ and our being gathered together to Him will not happen unless the apostasy comes first. Right? So that's the order or the sequence of events here. The apostasy comes first, right, which comes through the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, whose coming is with activity of Satan, this being the Antichrist. And then Christ will return and will be gathered to him after he is revealed. Again, this is a contrary to what you hear in dispensationalism, which says our being gathered to him takes place before the rise of the Antichrist. But here, the second coming and our gathering to Christ cannot happen unless the apostasy happens first, according to this passage here. Okay, So those happen simultaneously, according to verse 1, and they happen after the rebellion and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Right in here, the day of the Lord is the second coming of Christ. And it will not happen until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Okay? Which mitigates against, again, dispensationalism. Also, it mitigates against postmillennialism that teaches that the world will get better and better and better until the coming of Christ. But here, the man of lawlessness will be revealed before the coming of Christ, and it will be a very severe trial for the faith, for the righteous during that time. Okay, number four, which we've already dealt with, no secret rapture. <clears throat> okay, number five, the date, the day, and hour are unknown. The specific date, day, and hour, these are unknown. No one knows. So anyone who says they know the day that Jesus is going to return, you, we know automatically that person is not telling the truth, okay? So we can just discount them. And there have been, over the years, 88 reasons why Jesus will return on 8-8 of 88, right? Uh, there are 99 reasons why he'll return on 9-9 of 99. And this will continue on, you know, because people sell books off of it. And then they go back, well, I, I had my formula wrong, and they rework it. And, you know, and people listen to this nonsense, and they buy it. But the Bible clearly tells us that no one knows the day or the hour, that the specific date is unknown to anyone. And we don't need to know the specific date. 24, Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the Son, but the Father alone. No one knows. The angels in heaven, they don't know. Here, the Son in His incarnation, right? As a man, Jesus Christ did not know the day of his second coming. Now, of course, as the Son of God, as divine, of course he knows, but as the Son of Man, during his time on earth, God did not reveal this knowledge to Jesus Christ, the man, right, while he was on earth. Only the Father knows. Verse 42, Therefore be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And then 50, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour which he does not know. So, here, the day and hour are unknown. The specific day and hour. <clears throat> then verse 6. Jesus Christ is not coming again at any moment. At any moment. Meaning that we have no clue or idea of the events surrounding the second coming of Christ. Right? This day will not take us by surprise. Again, yes, this specific actual day we don't know, but the events that are leading up to those things are known by believers, and they're ready and prepared for the coming of the Lord. 
just as it was with Noah. Noah didn't know the exact day that the heavens would open up and the deep would burst, but he knew it was coming, and he knew it was coming quickly, and he was ready and prepared. And it didn't matter for him to know the exact specific date because he had made his preparations, and he was waiting for it, anticipating its coming. And so it will be with the believer. First Timothy, or First Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. It says, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. So there he says, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Right? He tells them that you are not in darkness, that that day would overtake you like a thief. Right? So who is it like a thief to? To the unbelieving. They're the ones that it's like a thief to, but he says, not for you. It's not going to be like a thief in the night for the true believer because they're ready for it. They're waiting for it. They're anticipating the second coming of Christ. It will come upon them suddenly, but not on you, right? Not on the believers because he says in verse 4, you are not in darkness that it would overtake you like a thief. You're sons of the light and sons of the day. We are awake, waiting, because we heard these, uh, the riffraff over there talking that they were going to come break into our house that night. So we know that they're coming. We don't know the exact hour of the night that they're coming, but we're sitting there waiting with our guns, right? And then when they show up, we're going to run them off and tell them to, to hit the road. This is how, Christ, now Christ isn't a thief in that sense. This is how his coming will be. We know that he's coming. We know it's soon. And we're ready and we're prepared so that when it happens, we're not surprised. And the way that we're prepared is we're not sleeping as others sleep. And we're not getting drunk like others who get drunk. They do those things at night, but we're not doing that. We're children of the day, meaning we're working. We're working, doing the works of God, believing in Christ, repenting of sin, living a godly life, loving God, loving the brethren. We're doing those things and we're not living in immorality, but we're living a godly life. And then when he comes, it'll be good and great. Next, holiness is expected of all Christians now. This is what it means to be children of the light or sons of the light, meaning we are to live a godly life right now in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the way that we are prepared for his coming, for that day not to overtake us like a thief. 1 John chapter 2, verses 20, 28. 1 John 2, 28. says, Now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. 
If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, we are now God's children, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Right? The hope of our salvation is that we will be like him. We will be like Christ. And when will we be like Christ? When we see him. Right? We will see him just as he is. This is his second coming. We will see him. We will look on him, not by faith anymore, but we will see him with our eyes. And we will be transformed into his likeness and everyone who has this hope this hope of salvation within him will purify himself now even as he is pure in anticipation of his perfection in his being purified perfectly on the day of the Lord he will seek to live a pure life now now again of course that won't be perfected there will be a mixture of purity and impurity so long as we have the flesh but he's striving to live a pure life. And that's what it means to be a faithful and wise slave, right? The master finds him doing his will when he comes. He's not living in open sin, unrepentant. He's not practicing sin as his way of life. Yes, he will commit sin, but he's pursuing holiness and godliness in the way that he lives. Next, degeneration occurs now. The world is not getting better, but worse right the world is not going to get better and better but it's going to get worse and worse no it's going to get more it's going to get worse this is the way that it is going to be in this present life we read already second thessalonians chapter one second thessalonians chapter one and it talked there about the uh sufferings that will happen because of the uh, persecution that is there upon the church. There in verse 6, that God will repay with affliction those who afflict you and give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And then in chapter 2, it talked about the man of lawlessness, the great apostasy that takes place when the lawless one comes. So that does not speak of a world that is improving, that is getting better and better and better. And this, again, is contrary to what is taught in postmillennialism, where they teach that Christians or Christianity is going to spread and dominate every aspect of this present world so that Christians will take over government, art, literature, entertainment, you know, uh, all these different types of aspects of of government and society, they'll all be Christianized and the world in which we live will basically be like utopia, right? It'll almost be uh, the, the hev new heavens and new earth here and then Christ will return after the world has been Christianized in this way and it has become better and better and better, okay? So it's a very positive outlook. Now again, we're not sour negative people, but we have to be realist, right? Realistic with what the Bible teaches, and the Bible doesn't teach this, okay? It doesn't teach it, but rather it teaches that degeneration will occur, meaning the world will get worse and worse, right? It'll go from bad, it's already bad, and it'll go to worse. This is the way it will be 
until the return of Christ. And right before Christ returns, it will get really, really bad, right? So bad that if possible, even the elect will be led astray. And the only thing that can deliver us will be the return of Christ. That's how bad and perilous it will be for the church. Second Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. In the last days is referring to the time in between the first and second coming of Christ. Okay? So the last days, we're living in the last days. And in the last days, he says, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Now you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. However, you continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So there, evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse. This is the way it will be during the last days. It will go from bad to worse. And there will be degeneration that occurs all throughout the world. Next, our only hope and comfort is Jesus Christ. This is our hope, not the Christianization of the world, but rather our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, delivering us from all evil. He will rescue us from everything. That's John 14 we read earlier, 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. There, their hearts are troubled. They're troubled because Jesus is telling them about his death that is coming up. Uh, he's telling them that they're going to desert him, that they're all going to fall away from him. Even Peter will deny him three times. And they're troubled at what he's telling them. But he says, don't be troubled about these things, but rather believe in God and believe in me. And I will take you to be with me. And that is our hope in this present life, is that we will be with the Lord for all eternity. And that is what we should fix our hope upon. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't use whatever influence we have or whatever we can do to 
improve this present world, right? If we see an injustice and there's something that we can do to rectify it, then we ought to pursue those things. But whatever happens in this world, we're not going to create a Christian utopia on this side of heaven, right? It's never going to happen. Our hope for salvation is only in Christ, only Him delivering us. Yes, do whatever we can do, live a godly life, use whatever influence we have to make the world a better place, but our hope is in the life to come, not in this present world. Next, there is only one gospel from Genesis to Revelation, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one way of salvation, and there's only been one way of salvation from the very beginning, right? From the very beginning of time, first introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and all who have been saved from Adam to the end of the world, they are saved through the one gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is, again, contrary to some teachings that believe that in different uh, periods or dispensations of time, people are saved in different ways, right? Uh, now, a lot of dispensational people today have uh, th that very, very rough edge. They've really smoothed out a lot. Uh, but if you read early dispensational teaching like Darby and others like him, I mean, they, they did teach that in the Old Testament, people were saved through law-keeping, right? This is the way of salvation in the Old Testament. And it's not until the New Testament that people are saved by faith through Christ. That is uh, blasphemy, right? We cannot hold to that. We cannot teach that. And they have different epochs, uh, different dispensations of time. And during those dispensations, people are saved in different ways. But that's not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is teaching that there is one way of salvation and that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And actually, our passage on Sunday, Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 2, is teaching the very same thing. Because he says, the good news was preached to them just as to right. us. He says the gospel was preached to them just as it is to us. The same gospel that we have heard is the gospel that they heard. But it did not benefit them because they were not united with faith with those who believed. Right? So he is saying there that it's the gospel. And actually, I was reading... Uh, a commentary on that by a Puritan named John Owen. And Owen is making this exact same point, that there's only one gospel. And from the beginning of time, anyone who's been saved has been saved by believing in that gospel and that it was made known to them in various ways in the Old Testament. So this idea, though it may be new or it's not commonly taught today in the churches, it is an old doctrine that many people have believed throughout, throughout the years. And typically the better theologians, they're all teaching this same thing. Galatians 1, 6 to 10 says, I am amazed that you are quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Then also chapter 3, chapter 3 verse 8 says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So there, he, he says explicitly, 
that the Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, that Abraham knew the gospel. And in that phrase, all the nations will be blessed in you, that promise has its fulfillment in who? In Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And Abraham was aware of these truths, and that is where his faith was found. He believed in that gospel. Number 11, the way of salvation for Israel and Gentiles is the same, both before and after the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The prophets of the Old Testament knew and proclaimed the gospel of Christ. So one way of salvation for all time. If there's one gospel, there's one way of salvation. And that way is the same for Israel and the Gentiles, so that the Jews and Gentiles are all brought into one body. We're all a part of the body of Christ. There are not two separate, distinct peoples of God that are different in the purposes of God, but rather the point from Genesis to Revelation is that there would be one true people of God. And this people has various different names. They can be called the true Israel of God, the church, the assembly, the congregation of the righteous, the, the sheep of Christ, what, the children of God, whatever you want to call them, but they all comprise one body, right? One people that are all saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The same way of salvation before and after the incarnation of Christ. Since we're in Galatians, Galatians 3, 26 to 29. Galatians 3, 26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So there, when he's talking about the church, what is another name for the church here? Abraham's descendants. Right? Abraham's descendants are the spiritual descendants. That's, that's who he's talking about here. Well, that connects us to Abraham, doesn't it? Doesn't it entail that, and he's talking after the coming of Christ. So this is during the church age, yet he's referring to them as descendants of Abraham. True descendants of Abraham, right? Meaning spiritual offspring of his. Also, Acts 20. Acts 20. And to 21 it says how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ so there he's testifying the same message to both Jews and Greeks because there's one way of salvation for Jews and the same exact way of salvation for the Greeks or for the Gentiles. All of them are saved in the same way. And that doesn't change after the coming of Christ, right? It's the same, right? The same for all time. And then Acts 4, verse 12, salvation can be found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Okay, next, the bodily resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Acts 24, verse 15. Acts 24:15 says, "Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, 
that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So there is a bodily resurrection of both groups, of both the righteous and the wicked. The righteous to eternal life and the wicked to eternal damnation. But whatever our eternal state is, we will exist there both physically and spiritually. We will have both a body and we will have a soul. Because when God created man, He created him with both a body and a soul, right? He created his body, then He breathed into him the breath of life. So we have these two components to mankind. We have a physical aspect and there is a spiritual aspect. And in the life to come, both the righteous and the wicked will exist both physically and spiritually. The righteous will have a glorified resurrection, a glorious body that is fit for the kingdom of God. And the wicked will be resurrected in their bodies and it will be fit for eternal damnation. And their body and their souls will be reunited on the day of judgment, both the righteous and wicked, and they will be consigned to their respective places. Okay? John 5, John 5, 28 and 29. John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There, all who are in the tombs. That's all people, right? Because everyone dies and they're buried or they're there in a tomb in some way or another. And everyone will come forth. Some to a resurrection of life. This is those who did the good deeds. Not that their good deeds are the basis for their salvation. Their good deeds are the fruit of their salvation. These are the righteous, and they will have a resurrection to eternal life. And those who committed evil deeds, the wicked, the resurrection to eternal judgment. So both of them have a bodily resurrection, right? A resurrection necessitates a body. You can't have a spiritual resurrection, right? You cannot, it doesn't make any sense, right? To be resurrected means that the body has to be involved. And this also was taught in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who led the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So they're to sleep in the dust of the ground. That is death. They're all going to awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting disgrace and contempt. Next, 13. The day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment. There is a day of judgment coming upon this present world. And this age that we are in, in this present world, will come to an end on the day of judgment. This is why God has created the world. So that He might judge the world in righteousness. And this present world will end on that day of judgment. And then the life to come will begin. The eternal life will begin. 
2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All people will stand before Him. There is this great day of judgment coming. Then Acts 17, 30-31. Acts 17, 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Right here again, he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Through a man, and who is that man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And what is the proof that he's given to all men that this is fixed, it's certain, it's irrevocable in the sight of God? It's his resurrection. His resurrection is the proof that God has ordained him to be the judge of this present world. He's given judgment to the Son, and then the Son will be the one who executes this judgment on the day of judgment. And because of this reality, this event that's coming, then how do we prepare ourselves for the coming day of judgment? Well, he tells us repentance. Everyone should repent, right? And what is the corresponding... Uh, Virtue with repentance. Faith, right? Repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what he's teaching them. The way that we prepare ourselves now for the day of judgment that's coming is through repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then when he appears, we will not shrink back in shame, but we will be rejoicing to see him and to stand before him on that day. Then next, the lake of fire is real and eternal. Matthew 25. The lake of fire is not uh, a guilty conscience. It's not annihilationism. It's not feeling bad about yourself. This is what some people, they want to do. They want to turn the lake of fire. It's not a real place. It's just uh, loss of existence or uh, the, you, know, you feel bad about yourself because of your sin and you're being tormented in there. That's what it means to be in the lake of fire. But the Bible teaches that the lake of fire is an actual place where real people will be, right? And we already read that they have a body. So it's a physical place, right? It's a physical place where people will be, where they will endure the torment of God for all eternity, right? It is real and it is eternal. Once a person passes into the life to come, their eternal destiny is fixed, and it is irrevocable. It is either eternal life or it is eternal damnation. Right. This is why we got to take it so seriously, because both of these realities, whether it's life or death, both of them are eternal and they are fixed once we part this life and enter into the life to come. This is the time of preparation, right? It is in this life that we must be prepared for the life to come, and that is to live a life of wisdom to use our present life to make preparations for the life to come so that we avoid the lake of fire and so that we enter into the new heavens and new earth. Matthew 25, verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Now here, the point being is that many people want to say that, yes, heaven is eternal, but not hell. Heaven is a real place, but not hell. Right? Heaven will be there and they'll exist with God for, forever and ever, but hell isn't real. It's just the annihilation of the soul. But here, eternal punishment and eternal life are put together. Right? So if eternal punishment isn't real, then neither is eternal life. Right? If it's the annihilation, of the, then what is eternal life? These things are set together as a contrast and as a parallel. Eternal life and eternal death. You can't have it one way and not the other. Right? If there is eternal life in heaven, which is a real place, then there's also eternal death in hell, a very real place. This betrays the prejudice of men. Right? They don't want to go to hell, so they try to find sneaky ways to get around it, right? to outlaw it, to ban it, to get it out of their mind and consciousness, because people don't want to hear about a God who would actually send sinners to hell for all eternity. But we can't do that. We have to teach these things and then warn men to repent, to repent so that they don't go to that lake of fire, that place of eternal torment. Then lastly, the new heavens and new earth are real, and they are eternal. Second Peter 3. Second Peter 3.13. Second Peter 3.13. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what will be different than this current heaven and earth. There is no righteousness hardly on this earth right now. But in the new one, there will be righteousness there. Only righteousness. 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So that is what awaits the children of God. A new heavens and a new earth where they will be with God. God will dwell with His people. He will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No death, no pain, no crying, no mourning. Everything that brings misery to us in this present world will all be done away with. And it will be eternal bliss and happiness with God. And we have these two set before us. We need to know about the new heavens and new earth and the eternal life that awaits for the people of God. That gives us hope. It gives us comfort in this present life. But we also need to know about the lake of fire. And that gives us the fear of God. And it causes us to press on. To press on and to do what's necessary to live a godly life, to persevere and to endure our hardships. Right? Both of those truths are needed for the saints for our perseverance. And that's why we teach both of these things.